Hello, my name is Kimberly Don Miller. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Global and Social Cultural Studies at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. I have a, a background in African and African diaspora studies, as well as gender studies and history. So I'm really excited to get into this discussion specifically on the Caribbean, which is my research focus. That's kind of where I want to like kick it off historically with the analysis of, of Dominica. So the 1975 hurricane and the, the way that this relates to disaster management, uh, foreign aid in particular as a tool of neocolonialism, the U.S. kind of role in promoting this uh, like American uh, neocolonialism with foreign aid after the hurricane, and then how this ties into like Cold War politics with uh, Dominica's relationship with Cuba um, and, and the Cold War politics of aid. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, the 1975, uh, I believe it was Hurricane David uh, that struck um, Dominica. Uh, it actually you know, really devastated the island. And at that time you had volunteers that come in. They came from Venezuela, they came from uh, Cuba, they came from Grenada to kind of like help um, in terms of that you know, uh, relief process. Then the U.S. also did, but it was in the ways in which they tried to condition and leverage U.S. aid to make sure that the Dominican state did not have, yeah, the Dominican state did not have ties with Cuba. So Cuba's revolutionary government, it was seen as a pariah for the United States, this kind of like independent um, move towards socialism. And in Dominica, socialism was also gaining attraction. It was absolutely, um, there were Marxist-Leninists, particularly uh, Rosie Douglas, he uh, was trained as a Marxist-Leninist. Um, he played a large role um, within the, the left, the left of the Dominican state, as well as uh, Dominican nationalism that was growing, Black power. Um, so there are all these kind of, and Cuba was very much an inspiring force uh, within the island. So um, it was interesting there, I have this one quote where the agricultural minister, he wanted volunteerism to form Dominican work brigades in terms of the rescue workers. And he was actually condemned as a godless communist, just for saying that, just for wanting to um, have Dominicans be kind of the, 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 the force that doesn't have to rely on this like Western aid model because they knew it was gonna be used to undermine their sovereignty. So the ways, in, and it was all, so much of the Dominican Freedom Party in particular that was getting backed by the US government giving aid to kind of push this narrative um, that no, uh, Dominicans don't wanna be under the boot of Cuba or the Soviet Union. Um, so there is very much a Cold War climate in terms of how aid was being leveraged. And we see this as well um, in the 21st century um, Dominique in particular, um, that was very much decimated by Hurricane um, Maria um, in 2017, and the ways in which um, right now Dominique is in the Labor Party of Roosevelt Scarrett, who did, you know, to his credit, try to create a path of autonomy within this IMF framework for um, debt, or sorry, uh, call it? natural disaster relief management. So it was still within this framework of this neoliberal kind of global restructuring and he kind of foresaw ways in which that he can kind of maybe leverage ties with Venezuela, um, you know, the Maduro government in particular, as well as the People's Republic of China uh, to, as a kind of autonomous form of development because the ways in which the West has leveraged aid and leveraged these restructuring programs are very much tied into, like you were saying, imperial dominance, hegemony, and neocolonialism. Okay. Uh, in 1981, let's kind of talk a little bit about 
the US-backed efforts of it basically intervening in Dominica and, and sending US-backed groups, US white supremacist groups to take over Dominica. And kind of what were the politics of the island at the time and also the Cold War politics that are at play at the time as well with Granada and the New Jewel movement and, and always kind of Cuba in the background as well. Okay, so this is actually a very strange story. It has a lot of twists and I think it's important to contextualize it within this wider project of US asserting itself in terms of how it can leverage um, its own foreign policy objectives into these newly independent Caribbean islands. So that's always helpful for me to understand the kind of trajectory of events. So in uh, 1980, the uh, interestingly enough, the US-backed uh, Dominican Freedom Party was in office with Eugenia Charles. Uh, so she was elected and at that time, it was very clear that she was anti-communist. But interestingly enough, given its geography, it's a, a couple islands above uh, Grenada, that it was going to be essentially used by these Canadian and American neo-Nazi mercenaries as a launching ground to subvert and sabotage the uh, government in Grenada. And they wanted to establish businesses and they just wanted to yeah, and their anti-communist fight it was very strange. And the US government under Reagan tipped off uh, the Dominican authorities to let them know that this coup operation was underway. So at this time, it essentially turned the Dominican foreign policy within the objectives of the United States government. And we saw this in, you know, typified two years later during the, um, surprisingly, ironically, the Eastern um, Organization, Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, which was a regional body that was established in the 70s to give the Eastern Caribbean islands more autonomy, at least how Maurice Bishop saw it, more autonomy against U.S. imperialism. It actually leveraged, it was used to uh, legitimize the U.S. invasion of Grenada. And uh, Eugenia Charles, which was the elected president of Dominica, actually sat at that, was a chairperson of that organization to approve that imperialist operation. So we're seeing the ways in which, you know, the U.S. can basically use the idea of national sovereignty against um, state counter-hegemonic uh, revolutionary governments and movements that kind of go against its, um, its agenda. So that was a very surprising um, situation, especially given the left-wing had been basically purged actually by Patrick John, who was apparently the one that was gonna be reinstated, put back in office after this coup. He wasn't a communist. He made sure that there was no traces of communism in his governance, but he was a, a sock dem, if you will. <laughs> so he was, I guess, the, the moderate wing of fascism, but he wanted to work with the, the, the these right wing forces to kind of topple this government, but it was still, he was still very much antagonistic toward Maurice Bishop. So you see the way the splintering of um, these kind of more left-wing forces and the ways in which the U.S. can essentially turn states against one another and more further and so these divisions and destabilization efforts. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and like you said, I mean, the plot is like, it's incredibly weird and kind of complicated and it implicates a lot of different figures like, you know, members of Congress and, and the governor of Texas who apparently knew about the plan, but it's like primarily these like neo-Nazis and, and KKK members who are trying to go and, and take over the island. And I, I think, so we, we talked a little bit about it and 
you know, I think it's clear that there is some U.S. intelligence involvement in some capacity uh, in this operation, and that's that's definitely related to the politics of the time, with the using of of Dominica as a base against Grenada, and I think yes. it's it's kind of curious to think like first that they would come up with such a ludicrous like plot, and they would have all this like strange involvement. In, and I have read more about. It. I recommend you know anybody listening to to read more about it. And because you know the guys are talking afterwards, and they're talking about apartheid South Africa being involved in this, and it's like this extremely complicated um, plot going on. But it's very much, I think, related to the US desiring to take out any like opposing uh, government like the New Jewel Movement in Cuba and kind of have control over the Caribbean in this way and prevent any kind of alternative from coming up. And I, I think just to relate that to like the next question is to say like, uh, with, with Dominica, like I guess in your research and in looking at these other examples, with tourism, but just in general, with kind of the control over these islands by the US government, by neocolonialism, why is it so important to crush these alternatives for the United States and to prevent any alternative from coming to, to power in the Caribbean? And with kind of the alternative examples that we've talked a little bit about um, of those development models posed by CARICOM and, and the East Caribbean, um, kind of unity that's coming out of this time, you know, why is this so important to break for, for U.S. neocolonialism, U.S. imperialism? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I do think it goes back to the question of what is sovereignty, what is national sovereignty, and what is um, so much of development even mean? And I think that uh, for the Caribbean in particular, you know, economic self-sufficiency was very much kind of going to be the envisioned goal, um, definitely amongst left-wing kind of, you know, uh, forces. They wanted to be able to Caribbean states engage in the global market on their terms, um, you know, outside of the weight of like crushing plantation economies that kind of dictate so much of essentially how they can navigate the world economy. And thinking about so much when it comes to Dominica, but other um, like banana producing um, islands, you know, at the World Trade Organization laid a devastating blow in 1999 that kind of shifted their entire uh, market for bananas um, at the whim of Bill Clinton. You know, he could simply decide that, um, you know, the EU's model of trade isn't favorable to U.S. corporations like Dole and um, Chiquita Banana, and they can exploit that, like the Central American, you know, workers, of course, um, to benefit U.S. corporations. Um, and it really devastated um, so many of these island economies that use, you know, they're based on agricultural exports. So just the, the idea of being at the whim of another entity, of another power, and the ways in which so many of the, you know, the, the radical elements that came out of the Black Power era and the independence era wanted to envision a way, a way in which development could be kind of sustained autonomously. So I think that in terms of thinking about CARICOM and you know, regional integration and like the history of the West Indian Federation, like there are all these kind of um, circumstances that made, made the I guess the pursuit of a, a, a strong kind of autonomous like anti-imperialist um, force it made it a lot more difficult because of the ways in which you know the neo-colonial realities of the history of the region. I mean the kind of underdevelopment and the ways in which you know how, what is 
viable nationalism look like in the context of trying to assert like a regional body that can really you know exert its own you know agenda and autonomy so yeah no that's a great answer and I, I think that kind of relates to you know in, in thinking about this plot in the 1980s and thinking about you know you have these guys literally I, I think admitting at one point that the CIA had approached them with this plot and and requisitioning their boat for use and everything. And it's it, it it has the make of a very thrilling kind of like over the top spy movie in some capacity. Like it's a, it's a ludicrous kind of story, but I think in some ways it also distracts from imperialism that has, that's more quiet and, you know, is taking place in the form of IMF structural adjustment and even tourism. Like if we're rethinking how, how we think of tourism and thinking of it in the context of finance imperialism, bring foreign currency to run these islands. Uh, and then in, in addition to that, something that happens in a very quiet manner, but super important, which we've, we've talked a little bit about with climate change. And just to think about like the destruction of the environment um, in places like Dominica and in, in other islands in the Caribbean, because really, you know, a big part of it is tourism and how it, it plays the role. It's hard to kind of like balance tourism with doing this kind of protection of the environment and ecology. So this ecotourism is sort of a, it's an interesting approach and it's one that has to be taken in kind of a, a you know, a careful manner because it can lead to some, I guess, dangerous consequences when you allow people to come in from all over the world and, and look at the environment and have to try and also urge them to protect it. So I, I guess this is like, my next question is about how this relates to protecting the environment, because that's such a crucial part of sovereignty, right? Like protecting the environment of your nation and not allowing it to be spoiled by foreign companies or foreign actors. So how does this, how does this, how do these concepts relate? Like how do, how does Dominica, for example, today try and protect its sovereignty while also, you know, very much related to that protecting its environment from, from tourism and, and still having to rely on this industry for, uh, for its economy. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great point in terms of thinking about how the tourism industry is a driver of climate change. So you have a region that's made incredibly vulnerable, actually the most impacted in terms of severity is the Caribbean um, going to be in the next um, several decades uh, by natural disasters. So there's a region that's dependent on tourism. Tourism plays a role in exacerbating climate change, and then they're made obviously more vulnerable by the severity of storms due to climate change. So it's this weird kind of contradictory element of kind of needing the same um, uh, source of revenue that's like harming the region so much. And I think when it comes to Dominica, so much of what I heard when I was there doing preliminary research was focused on preserving the nature in terms of not allowing the type of uh, development trajectories that tourist economies that you might see in Dominican Republic, for instance, where um, I think it was interesting, they said, oh, where are the white sand beaches, you know, on, in Dominica, they could construct white sand beaches, <laughs> but, you know, that's not their natural topography. And, you know, a lot of, I think there's some dissent around, you know, going too far, what's too much, you know, and try and find a balance about, you know, how they will approach um, and, and protect. They're very, very fragile ecosystem um, related to, you know, of driving in of this like global market of tourism because you can put 
you could say ecotourism, green resilience tourism, nature tourism, that can also be co-opted. And I think that, you know, when I look at specifically ecotourism, I kind of don't paint it as one thing because it depends on how it's being um, enacted. It depends on the vision of the government in terms of how they see that kind of development. And there's certainly ecotourism in, you know, Grenada, for instance, that, you know, there's still kind of, or, or ecotourism in Mexico. I mean, there's ecotourism um, development that's also occurring in, in states that do prioritize tourism, but they're still seeing this kind of erosion of autonomy um, of the natural environment because it's based off these market incentives. So as long as it's like green capitalism, <laughs> essentially, because it's still um, within this framework of like global capital and how that in terms of you know, prioritizes, you know, extraction, pollution. And I think that's one thing I look at is how specifically um, it will be developed in, in, in conservation and in a friendly kind of interaction with the, with the host environment, because it hasn't been the case <laughs> for a large part of the tourism industry which ecotourism is <laughs> in the tourism industry. So, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that's really kind of important to remember when thinking about this as an alternative development model is like, it's still tourism to a certain extent. It's still relying on, on foreign currency and relying on uh, foreign investment to a certain extent to prop up the economy. And with, with that, I'm kind of curious about how this factors into the broader conversations taking place right now about multipolarity and taking kind of alternative options in, in foreign policy and in foreign investment. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about, about Venezuela, Venezuela, Petro-Caribe and, and uh, China as well, and kind of how these new actors can potentially challenge the, hege the hegemony of the United States in tourism, in the economy, um, and in the, these industries and in investment in the, in the Caribbean. So, yeah, I'm curious about kind of contextualizing this with the broader conversations on multipolarity, kind of the changing nature of U.S. hegemony, and whether these are viable options that can both preserve like sovereignty and alternative development and definitely protect the economy, the uh, environment as a, as a primary goal. Right. Well, um, thinking about multipolarity, interestingly enough, um, CBI, which is a controversial, uh, it's called Citizenship by Investment. It's a controversial uh, policy, but it's basically, you know, trying to create investment by like foreign, essentially like foreign entities to kind of go in and like become citizens of the country um, and invest in, and that money can be then uh, funneled into more infrastructure projects. So that's basically what Dominica also does, which is an alternative form of development in a sense, because again, um, de-risking or de-linking. I'm not sure the word, um, the correct terminology, but specifically the ways in which banks, American banks have, you know, withdrew a lot of times from the Caribbean in uh, the post-global recession of 2008. So just, in, you know, that's also made a lot of Caribbean islands to seek to get um, currency or, you know, in terms of investment from China or from these alternative sources, because again, you know, because of the nature of global capitalism and unsustainability, it's kind of, been, you know, disproportionately punished, uh, you know, the global south um, in particular. So just thinking about it in that sense, um, I do think geopolitics is important in this. I was thinking about Eugenia Charles, whose foreign policy became very much aligned with Ronald Reagan uh, in the 80s. And in particular, um, you know, Dominican's foreign policy, you know, they recognized Taiwan over the People's Republic of China until uh, the Labor Party came back into power. So when the Labor Party came into power, they did recognize People's Republic of China and how that alone kind of opened up a different kind of relationship that they could have. And I do think when I'm thinking about Haiti, for instance, 
you know, the ways in which the U.S. leverages its authority over Haiti, some would say Haiti has basically become a colony of the United States, um, in terms of making sure that they don't recognize the People's Republic of China and just how infrastructure development projects have not even pursued in Haiti because of that dynamic. So there's definitely the ways in which the U.S. can still try to leverage its hegemony against the internal affairs and how that can kind how multipolarity then could be a counter to that, but it's still, it's complicated because of the ways in which the US has these very toxic relationships with islands that it has deep, deep histories of meddling in. Absolutely, and I think that leads to, I guess my last question, which is about like, how to square all of these efforts for protecting sovereignty and alternative forms of development with a broader kind of initiative of, of kind of a pan-Caribbean uh, unity that emphasizes, you know, overcoming the uh, individual kind of like histories and, and dispositions of, of the different island nations and bring them together um, in uniting the Caribbean and working collectively. And so you have like, it's hard to imagine that you have simultaneously a kind of pan-Caribbean unity that lead that is led by uh, Dominica and, and Eugenia Charles that is very much in favor of the United States. And then Kind of a more progressive model of you know something like CARICOM which I wonder like you know how how progressive this body can be and and how much it's kind of pushed back against U.S. imperialism or foreign imperialism and also how it can potentially serve as a, like a future model maybe it's not perfect but can be a future model for a more kind of united um, economic and, and foreign policy initiative on behalf of the entire uh, Caribbean in in totality. So yeah, I'm curious about how this all fits in with CARICOM as an organization and what you make of it and, and kind of what its role will be in a future pan-Caribbean unity and kind of preserving these, these important things we've talked about, like sovereignty and, um, and protecting the environment as well. Well, I always go back, um, you know, in terms of chronologically, uh, to the West Indian Federation, 1958, it um, fell apart in 1962, and it had a lot of support on the ground, absolutely, in terms of the Commonwealth Caribbean, but I will say that, you know, when these top-down structures, I think it's important to, to realize that, you know, there are things like, you know, class contradictions, and um, I think that in the terms of you think about the post-independent Caribbean, um, things like managerial class, um, you know, in terms of their interests superseding maybe a pan-Caribbean socialist vision, um, you know, things like that relate to, again, the question of national sovereignty, independent sovereignty, you know, can CARICOM as a regional block kind of uh, leverage its authority over Haiti or what, you know, the Haitian kind of internal affairs or Dominican internal affairs, you know, what role does it play in terms of, you know, carving out the idea of national sovereignty within this kind of regional body? And I think that when it comes to, you know, how I would approach it as a Marxist, you know, I, I love like pan-Caribbean socialism, like that's great. Um, but when you look into the history, it becomes a, a bit more complex and specifically, at, you know, in terms of, you know, why isn't there more integration and how can that, can that be achieved? But I will say, that I do think as Maurice Bishop envisioned um, the um, organization of Eastern Caribbean states kind of being a regional block 
to be able to assert itself against U.S. hegemony and Western sabotage. I do think that's very inspiring, and um, I'm definitely supportive of CARICOM and their reparations demand. It's inclusive, it's intersectional, um, and I, I really, I do think that that I like their principles of non-interference. Um, you know, in terms of we're talking about. Um, I was thinking about in terms of Russia and the war in Ukraine and how you know a good amount of members abstained from removing Russia from the Human Rights Council. So it can still kind of leverage its kind of like independence from the US dominated uh, foreign policy positions, even though prior it didn't in particular in terms of the invasion, but it still shows the ways in which you know it can sway, it can it can leverage its authority in terms of you know, maybe opposing a coup attempt in Venezuela, you know, things like that. So I do think CARICOM is very important and I do hope for deeper uh, integration. Absolutely. And I think, as you mentioned too, the CARICOM reparations initiative it is something that I think is like definitely should be watched very closely because that's like a, you know, very important initiative. And, uh, and, and as you mentioned as well, to kind of trace this back to Maurice Bishop and his ideas in the New Jewel movement of promoting uh, pan-Caribbean unity, which definitely would have, you know, been a, a useful role in preventing the U.S. Uh, intervention that ultimately overthrew the New Jewel movement. And it, it's unfortunate, I think, to think like in in the final analysis of how the U.S. uses these islands against one another, and even in reading about and as we talked about with Operation Red Dog, it's like you're reading about people talking about how to use Dominica against Granada in this way that very is reminiscent of, of divide and conquer mentality under imperialism. And there's the ways in which funneling so much funding into these opposition parties so that they have a chance to win also right. and be able to kind of enact these policies that further US objectives. So. Absolutely. And yeah, that, that electoral meddling, I think people don't really grasp like how much of an impact that has and even when you were discussing kind of the recognition of Taiwan, I mean, that's kind of a critical diplomatic um, like position that does have a huge role in investment and in choosing alternative options that is really dependent on which party is in power. So yeah, the US meddling kind of extends all the way from this kind of electoral influence to the more over the top uh, kind of intervention that occurred. So thank you so much. And I guess the last thing would be uh, any book recommendations that you have that people should read to learn more about this subject, go for it. Yes, okay, so quite a few. So this is In Search of Eden, Essays on Dominican History. And it's by um, Irving Andre and Gabriel Christian. It's kind of hard to find, but if you can find it, <laughs> it's very, very big. But there's so much um, history, specifically around um, Dominican labor history, communist history, Marxist Leninist history. It goes all into that. It's very good for finding out its radical past. I love that. And then also, I'm currently reading. Non-Sovereign Futures, French Caribbean Politics in the Wake of uh, Disenchantment by Yermar Bania. And this is also a great book because I'm thinking right now about the French presidential elections in Guadeloupe, Martinique, French Guyana, kind of goes into the question of like, what does national sovereignty look like and the roles in which they have in carving out their own autonomy. So that's relevant. And currently also um, women and tourist work in Jamaica. Um, this really goes into the feminizing of the tourist industry in particular. I know there's a lot of Marxist in, into uh, sex work questions, so it kind of gets into the sex trade, sex tourism, um, but it's also fascinating to show the, the ways in which, you know, which populations are disproportionately harmed by the unsustainability of the tourist industry. So 
the good one. Yes, and that covers it. Yeah, thanks so much. Those all look really great. And also, especially with non-sovereign futures, as you mentioned, like, yeah, the French election kind of just happening and uh, Marine Le Pen getting, uh, you know, the protesters, the anti-fascist protesters she encountered in Guadeloupe, like that's kind of, still a lot of people don't know those are departments in, of France, like overseas departments. So. They call great. them militant blacks, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's very, that's very on brand for her. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure Macron's response was no better, so. Well, thank you so much um, for, for talking more. And I, I learned a lot still and, and learning a lot about Dominica. And, and this history is really fascinating as well. As you mentioned with the first book, In Search of Eden, the kind of untapped history of Marxism-Leninism yes. in Dominica, that's kind of what we're, we're, we're really interested in pretty much like in our group is, is just learning more about Marxism-Leninism in places in the global South that it hasn't been written about. So, you know, that might be a book that our reading group gets to sometime. So yeah, thanks so much and we really appreciate it. All right, goodbye. Bye.